Hello, and welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that the Gonch Gardener perpetrated two walled-up ghost pranks on Grange Hill. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that no one has ever seen to, is broadcaster Bob Fisher. Bob, what are you up to and where can we find it? I'm currently on tour with a travelling stage show about what Last of the Summer Wine teaches us <laughs> about British social history over the 37 <laughs> years that it was on air. Uh, I also work for BBC Tees. Are we table six, Tim? We're not, are we? No. All right. <laughs> um, I also work for uh, BBC Tees in the North East. I present a rambling music and arts evening show. And I also wrote a book called Whiffle Lever to Full about my science fiction obsession. And I write a column called The Haunted Generation about popular hauntology for the 14 times. Do you want me to shut up already? Well, only because I was going to say, you mentioned that you're on tour. Yes. So I'm hoping that your antics on tour are a little bit different to your first choice, which is represented by this. Now, the first time you worked in this theatre, how old were you? I was 12 years old. Yeah, I won a talent contest. Yeah. And I was too young to come on stage after 10 o'clock, so I stood down there where that bear is. Yeah. Hi. And, and, and you had to st- and you won, I and you had to stand there, there yeah. isn't that? Oh. Now, your mum's here today, isn't she? Is your mum she here? is. Give her on. a wave, what is she? Hi, Mum. Hi, Mum. All right. All right. You enjoying the show? Smash, you think the singing's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> OK, either that is going to be a clip of Tom O'Connor talking, not asking somebody if they're a sardine, sadly, that's a joke for Stuart Lee fans, or, if I can get hold of it, it's going to be the amazing theme tune to this, which we may come back to in a minute. So, Bob... The Tom O'Connor Roadshow. This was a programme that was broadcast on BBC One throughout, I think, 1987. I can't find any evidence of it before or after. Uh, But it was on lunchtimes in 1987. Uh, The reason that I know it was on lunchtimes is because I used to come home for lunch from my secondary school, which was five minutes' walk away from my house. I think my, my coming home for lunch began as a result of a dinner lady strike, if you can possibly imagine such a thing. I think it was some demon issue with a spam fritter at my school. But the dinner ladies went on strike, so I began walking home and sorting out my own dinner, and I discovered during this laborious process that there was a programme on in which Tom O'Connor, who I really like, I've got a lot of time for Tom O'Connor, you know, here we are in Liverpool and he's a local lad, was effectively broadcasting a variety show. And as as the word road show suggests, (laughs) uh, he was traipsing around the country doing this. I think they did a week from each location. They did, yes. That is the case. Right, and they would be by and large fabulously provincial theatres where busloads of pensioners essentially had been <laughs> sent to watch Tom O'Connor and his roadshow. I think you would probably have a name act on this. So the one I remember, I'm sure I saw Keith Harrison Orville joining Tom O'Connor live from, you know, Slough Civic Theatre. And I think there would be an element of local talent being involved uh, in the roadshow as well. Talent. Well, I use the word <laughs> in its loosest terms, obviously. So I think, you know, if there, if there was a popular local comedian, they might find themselves on stage as well. There were games involved. Was there a game involving a bus? I don't know. All I remember is they had the roadshow relay quiz where the grand prize was a car. So right. what these pensioners did with that car, I don't know. <laughs> what an appallingly ageist attitude, Tim. <laughs> pensioners drive cars just as much as anybody else. Maybe it's that that I'm thinking of. Did roadshow relay involve a bus at any stage? I've uh, no I idea. Right. Okay, no, I can't remember either. I do recall Debbie Greenwood, former Miss UK. Debbie mm. Greenwood, as we were constantly reminded, being involved. Yeah, she was the out-and-about girl, she apparently. Was. Yeah, she, 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 
Which kind box. of that kind of brings me around to what my problem with the Tomoconderojo was at the time and yeah. is now, which is kind of I wouldn't so much say walking sheep's clothing, but it was it was the new technology. It was broadcasting live. It had dazzling title graphics. It had that really bland eighties theme that went Tomoconda, Tomoconda, on a like bit of Cagney and Lacey saxophone. <laughs> you know, had video effects like Quantel and so on. Yeah, but it was a relatively reactionary old comedian. Bossing about a lovely lady. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't imagine there were many enlightened views expressed in it. So it was kind of it was a weird halfway house between two ages of television. I I've actually seen a little bit of love for Tom O'Connor recently. It was kind of an observational comic in an age when lots of comics mm. just did gags, which he, yeah, obviously yes, he did yeah. that as well. But I think there was a little bit more to mm. Tom O'Connor than just you know my mother-in-law. Well, there um, was, but this this program was basically like it was the equivalent of somebody put a swatch on him. <laughs> said there you go you're relevant to the 80s now <laughs> did he have like a sweatshirt with like a pastel pink version of the show's logo on it was 1987 everything was pastel pink the world was made out of pastel pink if you watched a question of sport there would be a pastel pink set and everybody on it was wearing pastel pink Slazenger jumpers <laughs> the bit of the Tom O'Connor Roadshow that has really stuck in my head was a talent contest where again uh, uh, you know local hopefuls could take to the stage and I think there would be one act every day throughout the week and then on the Friday the winner would be announced how the voting process worked and how much scrutiny it stood up to I'm not entirely sure I assume pensioners the pensioners that had been bussed in on the pretext of winning a new Ford Escort XL3i would have to vote in a ballot box at the end of every programme as to which local hopeful they thought was the most talented now I have one act in mind that took part in this talent show and funnily enough my research such as it is has led me to assume that it must have been an occasion when the Tom O'Connor Roadshow landed in Liverpool because the act that took part in the talent show on this particular occasion was some kind of amateur dramatics group and what they presented on stage on this fateful day was a musical theatre reenaction of the 1974 FA Cup final. So, sorry, what did you just say? Okay, do you want me to repeat that? <laughs> yeah. Just in just in case you thought you drifted into some kind of hallucinogenic haze. <laughs> a musical theatre reenaction by a Liverpool amateur dramatics group of the 1974 FA Cup final between Liverpool and Newcastle United. Were yeah, they you're being looking at me. Spectators or fans? Or, what do you mean, spectators or fans? Spectators or players? <laughs> I like the distinction. <laughs> spectators and fans Tim I've been a Middlesbrough season ticket holder there can be a difference between spectators and fans no they reenacted the final so there are only a handful of them but they would take the parts of the players in the final it was essentially an opera this was the 1974 FA Cup final in libretto my memory of it is of one of the performers taking the part of John Toshak who played for Liverpool in said cup final and I can remember a very tiny snippet of the song that he sung do you want me to perform this for you? I've got the ball, I've got the ball, I've got the ball, I've got the ball. Possibly not doing the man justice here. <laughs> he, he performed it with some gusto. As I'm sure you know, people in this neck of the woods will be aware, the uh, 1974 FA Cup final ended up in a 3-0 win for Liverpool. Two yeah. goals for Kevin Keegan, <laughs> one goal for Steve Highway. It was, a, it was a, a, a match in which David Coleman notoriously commented that uh, uh, Newcastle's defence had been stripped naked 
by Liverpool, which when you think this is a Newcastle side that included Terry McDermott, that's not a particularly edifying prospect. So thankfully, the Tom O'Connor Roadshow reenaction of the mm. FA Cup final from 1974 didn't involve, as I recall, any nakedness. But it is a performance that's stuck in my mind ever since, <laughs> and I would be intrigued to know if anybody else can shed any further light on this, and I would like to hear more lyrics from the song as well. Well, do you even remember if they won that week or not? I have absolutely no recollection of that whatsoever. <laughs> but maybe the dinner ladies had gone back yeah. to work by the Friday yeah. and I never found out. I'd like to think that they did. Mm. There are two things that have struck me about the Tom O'Connor Roadshow. One is I did sort of look into it, because my memory of it is it seeming to last forever. Although it only seemed to be on in 1987, yeah. it seemed to be an infinite version of 1987 where it's perpetually the Tom O'Connor Roadshow, where they right. turn on the TV in the daytime. Did it but, not? I, I have no well, idea. Well, it ran from January to April, right. followed later in the year by the Tom O'Connor Roadshow replay. That well, highlights package. Well, I think they were just repeating old episodes, possibly right. slightly trimmed to take you know the rougher <laughs> edges out. But if the, if the reenaction of the 1974 FA Cup final had been trimmed, <laughs> there'll be hell to pay. But do you think it might have been they thought it was a clever joke that they had the relay quiz and they were doing the replay? And oh. it, it's probable that that's the kind of terrible joke that the backroom boys it's think possible, is funny, isn't yeah. it? But the other thing that's only just struck me now yeah. is, given those dates, mm. later in the year. Do you remember this just after Noel Edmonds had obviously, you know, he had a lot of bother after the end of the Late Late Breakfast show yeah. with the tragic circumstances that ended in. And there's this myth that he, was, he wasn't he was on TV for a couple of years and right. he returned with the house party. But he had two shows in 1907. One was Whatever Next, the game show, which I won't talk about because I live in hope that one day somebody will <laughs> choose that on here and I will get to discuss why in the opening titles Noel was running away from a man carrying a giant match. Is that right? Which, that I, was, I, I'm sad to say it won't be me that chooses it because <laughs> I have no recollection of it whatsoever. I love Whatever Next. But the other is that his comeback show on Saturday evenings later that year was the Noel Edmonds Saturday Road Show mm. where the joke was it was always in Television Centre and they pretend it was somewhere else that's but true like, mocked up outdoor footage yes is it a joke lost in the mists of time that he was sending up the Tom O'Connor Roadshow I'd in love to think that like is the case in friendly rivalry way <laughs> and it or just got it? out of hand and ran for two years or was whatever it? it was was it an expose on the Tom O'Connor Roadshow <laughs> was the Tom O'Connor Roadshow in the same theatre every week and they just redressed it to look like it was touring the UK no because on the, on the opening titles he got in the sports car and grinned and drove off as if he I'm off to Slough. <laughs> well, I hope Tom O'Connor wasn't sufficiently wound up that he failed to ignore warnings about a plant that he might have encountered on his travels, which is your next choice, which is represented by this. I had no idea what to use as a clip for this. So that was the United States of America, the American satirical psychedelic band in the Garden of Earthly Delights. It's about a girl who, when you look in her eyes, you can see all kinds of poisonous plants. So better cancel that second date, I think. 
But one of the plants that they don't mention in it is your next choice, Bob, which is... Giant hogweed. Now, I'm not saying for a second that giant hogweed is a lost part of British pop culture that people will not remember. Because giant hogweed, contrary to the efforts of many garden clearance firms over the last <laughs> couple of centuries, is very much still with us. I go walking quite a lot along local riverbanks and I see it all the time. This is specifically a report on John Craven's news round that I've managed to date to... 1982, and I'm assuming early summer 1982, because that's when giant hogweed starts to flourish. <laughs> giant hogweed, for those that are unaware, it is a pretty nasty plant. It grows on riverbanks, it grows to pretty terrifying heights, it can mm. be 8, 9, 10 feet tall. It does have poisonous sap to the extent where if giant hogweed sap lands on your skin, it will turn that skin incredibly photosensitive. The sap is phototoxic. Can you tell I've researched this in quite some time? I can. Yeah, have you got the Latin name? Because I've got that. Oh, here. come on, let's have it. It's Heraculeum mantigazanium. It even sounds nasty. If you get giant hogweed on your skin, effectively what will happen is that your skin will blister really nastily within about 30 minutes. But that, realistically, is the extent of the damage. However, <laughs> I am convinced that in early summer 1982, the avuncular, the genial John Craven, ran a news report on the dangers of giant hogweed, essentially in the style of great public information films, warning children to stay away from it because it was nasty and they could get blisters if they played with it and got the sap on their skin. However, the, the sting in the tail here, and I'm convinced I've got this right because none of that would have stuck in my mind otherwise. I think at some point during that news report, John Craven turned his steely gaze down the television camera and said, it might even kill you. And that, for me, was the next year of my life ruined. <laughs> not only did I become phobic of giant hogweed, which you know, was not a, not a plant that I was going to encounter no. every single day of my life. You know, it wasn't marching up the drive to our front door. Not only did I become phobic of it, I became phobic of riverbanks in general because as far as I was concerned if you went to a riverbank you were going to fall into a nest of giant hogweed <laughs> and die there were no two ways about it <laughs> this came to a head at the 10th birthday party of my good friend Paul Clark which again I've dated to the summer of 1982 <laughs> because as Paul Clark's birthday treat we went to see Rocky 2 <laughs> at the cinema I like where this is going <laughs> But then, as a treat after the film screening, we went back to Paul Clark's house. Now, Paul Clark's house, now you see the, the horror that is about to unfold here. Paul Clark's house backed on to the River Leven, which is a subsidiary of the River Tees. And his garden, he had a sloping back garden. At the bottom of the garden was the riverbank. We were told by his mum, you know, that the hula hoops and the sausage drills will be ready for you in uh, <laughs> a, about half an hour's time. What? I mean, obviously, we'd, we'd seen Rocky too. Like, you know. <laughs> the previous three hours of the afternoon why she hadn't got her finger out and prepared them during those those three hours I have no idea I was being appallingly unfair to Mrs Clark here but ten of us marched down to the riverbank as you can imagine giant hogweed was in full flight and I'd seen it on John Craven's news round I knew what it looked like the extraordinary thing about giant hogweed and its appeal to ten year olds is that when it's dry it makes for a phenomenally effective lightsaber so the other nine kids <laughs> 
in the party that immediately turned into Jedi. It was like a fight from the Bash Street kids. It's like a, a cloud of dust with fists and boots and bits of giant hogweed sticking out of it. I, as you can imagine, just I ran. I, I <laughs> never shifted so quickly in my life. Ran straight up the sloping garden back to the house and had to throw myself upon the mercy of Mrs. Clark, who, not unreasonably, was entirely like bemused. And my fear of giant hogweed stayed with me for, I would say, the rest of 1982, possibly into 1983. It only really began to subside when I discovered that the world was teetering on the brink of a nuclear apocalypse. But the giant hogweed would have survived the blast, surely. You would imagine so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's particularly nasty stuff. I don't remember the John Craven report, but I'll come back to how I knew about giant hogweed in a minute. Okay. But I tried to find it, and I couldn't, but I can't believe that he might have gone a bit over the top about it. Because one thing I did find was he was still writing about Giant Hogweed, the Country File magazine, in 2015. No! And warning about its menace. He was! was like yes! Sensational! It's... I didn't know this. He's, he's obsessed. Have you got a quote? The man is obsessed! <laughs> <laughs> I haven't, sadly, but... Oh, my! But the, the other things I found out, just before I come to my own anecdote, got. were two things. Just Genesis did the song about the threat of Giant Hogweed. Indeed, they did. But being Genesis, they had to start with a bit about Hugh Garth and how it got yes. delivered there by a very posh man or something. Yes. The other thing is, the EU have been regularly funding the giant alien programme to move giant hogweed from the UK. Right. So, yeah, cheers, Nigel. Let's hope it comes for you first. So in the event of Brexit, giant hogweed we will be, will be, be rampant. <laughs> it finally will be marching up the drive to get me. What I remember was, because I don't remember the, like I say, the Newsround report, I remember there being a column on it in the Liverpool Echo, one of those weird, smudgy, okay. like, falling off the edge of the page columns they used to have where there'd be like two lines where the line spacing was different to the rest of it right but warning that it had been spotted on the Wirral and that children were not to go near ah, it so there was something in the air at the time there then. was there was and the main reason it sticks in my mind was one of my sisters did not get on with some children down the road she saw them playing with some reeds but they found something went up and said that's giant hogweed and they ran off <laughs> screaming was it giant hogweed it wasn't it was, it was, right, it was okay. like it was false flag giant yes, hogweed yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still, you know, I'm walking along a riverbank now and yeah. I see some. I still will give it a wide berth. <laughs> you just made me think there with Trump saying, I am the giantest hogweed. <laughs> the sad giant hogweed thinks it's gianter than me. <laughs> well, this is the thing, like, I'm not, you know, ironically enough, I'm not remotely scared of nuclear apocalypse anymore, but I still give a little bit of a wide berth to giant hogweed. Well, I'm sure if you took Donald Trump as well, you'd come out in blisters. <laughs> I do, well, <laughs> <laughs> possibly true, yeah, he's probably made of it. But yeah, it was weird how you did used to get those. I mean, in this case, it was facilitated by the media, but like yeah. playground bogeymen that were just things in nature. Because I remember, I don't, I've never done whether this was regional or not, mm. but just think about people believed it was sort of worm called a blood sucker. And very oh, often yeah. in the playground, the crime would go around, it was always a girl would say, Ah, there's a blood sucker, and everyone would run to the nearest place that could stand above the ground. Ah. Well, this poor little worm was just no, on it its was, own. So it was a worm in your... On side. it was a fly. Which, you know, is not on. They were in it I mean, together. They're, they're, yeah, they were in league. The worms and the flies. When they got together, it, it was, was murder. murder. <laughs> so, no, on side, it was absolutely a fly, which mm. is uh, not unreasonable. There are flies out there that will suck your blood. 
Well, I don't think there were many of them on Teesside in the 1970s and 80s. Mm. Was the worm purported, it will take all of your blood? Oh, yes, yeah. It you would be on you, you and just instantly yeah. you'd be like... Uh, you'd be a husk. At, at the end of Temple of Doom. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> like a withered husk yeah. on the playground. Well, I mean, are there any other animals around the country purported to be blood suckers? I don't know. There may be regional area. It might be like the ITV regional listings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the weird bits where you saw the programmes where you didn't know what they were. Wouldn't yeah. they just said in time to use blood sucker. Yes, in Wiltshire there's a blood sucking cat that goes around the primary school playground. There it is. There it is. Well, a couple of years later, something that was nearly as prevalent was singles by the cast of EastEnders. Which brings me on to your next choice. Now, at the time of ri- time of writing, time of recording, I've got no idea what I'm going to use here. But see you on the other side. <laughs> You're packing the bags, I'm off to see the old World Cup. When it's first supporting for a QPR, when a teenage was in the mega star, when the Latin lover on the silver screen, and the cancel dustman in between. Okay, well that was something EastEnders related from 1986 because never mind I can't get a ticket for the World Cup I can't get I can't get a ticket for the World Cup by Peter Dean Bob, please tell us what was going on I honestly wish I could This is... It's a memory I have from the build-up to the 1986 World Cup. As you say, lots of members of the cast of EastEnders had released records by this stage. So you had the band. Have they been banned from rehearsing in the Queen They Vic? had, so the they were the, yeah. band. the band. Not to be confused with the band, that's in Bob Dylan's mates. I think, do you know what, I think in that particular episode, that was referenced. Was it? It I, was. Was it Was it Sharon and Kelvin? Sharon and Kelvin with the singers. There's yeah. also Ian Beale on drums. Oh, and on keyboard. Right. And Wixie's mate Eddie, who looked like Billy Idol on guitar. <laughs> who, go. The only two things I remember about him were he was rehearsing and their manager, who was like a Billy Bragg figure, said, Oi, Jimi Hendrix, knock it on the head, will you? <laughs> and that he turned up the next year for Kelvin's birthday party for one ah. episode. It's really weird. Anyway, sorry. Oh, I didn't piece of continuity. I interrupted your standards no, no. reminiscing. So, I th- in that particular episode, they're rehearsing upstairs in the Queen Vic, and I, you see, you know, Dirty Den comes up and says, Actually, you can't make that racket in here. At which point they say, well, we've been banned. We could be the band. You know, and it's a pun. <laughs> and I, I, it's either Kelvin or Sharon or Ian pipes up and says, oh, it's been done. At which point I th- has it? There isn't a band called The Band? That's a brilliant neck. I was 13 years old. I'd never heard of it. Well, there was actually a punk band actually called The Band as oh, well. So they obviously oh, forgot so about them. Oh, yeah. right. Who did the cover of Little Girl, the syndicate of sound, 60s, mid-60s hit. Yeah. They yeah. later did the beams of Captain Zepp's Space oh, Detective, which is how no, I know. Beautiful. <laughs> that had been released as a, a single. It's called Something Out of Nothing, I think, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Nick Berry had had his number one hit with Every Loser Wins yeah. off the back of Lofty being dumped by Michelle and listening to it 
obsessively. Clearly there was a feeling in the air that if you were a member of the cast of EastEnders, you mm-hmm. could have a hit record. And clearly somebody thought, for, for, for reasons we're not party to, that the most obvious member of the cast of EastEnders to be, to be the next in line of this proud lineage of hit makers was Peter Dean, who played, you know, Ian's dad, Pete Beale, market yeah. holder Pete Beale. Not an obvious pop star by any stretch of the imagination, <laughs> but he had a crack, and the single that he did was indeed called, I'm going to get this right, open brackets, can't get a ticket, close brackets for the World Cup. Have I got that right? I believe so, yeah. Right. The only bit of it that I can recall is the chorus, which I, 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 I can do this for you again if you like. Please, because we might not have it. So. <laughs> Hold up. I can't get a ticket for the World Cup. Hold up. I can't get a ticket for the World Cup. CBS? Yes. Yes. It came out on a major label. My recollection of that record stems entirely from a performance that Peter Dean definitely gave on TV. Mm. Um, I absolutely saw it. I assume he was a guest on somebody else's show. It wasn't, it wasn't the Peter Dean special. Much as I'd love to have seen that. He must have been a guest on a variety show or, you know, it will yeah. have been on, I don't know, Les and Dustin's after show on yeah. the Sabbath yeah. or something. But he came on and did it on TV with us with an England scarf and I, I, I've never seen or heard of it anywhere else since. Well, it has fallen on the face of the earth. I mean, I yeah. even contacted did. Our old mate Dave Bryant is the excellent Left Into the Back blog, which is right. about all these dreadful singles he's yeah. found in charity shops, and he hasn't got it. Right. So nobody has. Well, there I, is a picture on Discogs. There but that's is. It. The sleeve is right. The curious thing about the sleeve on Discogs is that it appears to have been officially sanctioned by the Scottish, Irish, and English FA. It's got the badges of all three <laughs> organisations on the sleeve. Missing conspicuously by their absence is the Welsh FA. <laughs> It's just struck me that was possibly because Wales didn't qualify for the World yeah. Cup in 1986. <laughs> Although I like to think they just took one listen to it and thought, do you know what? We'll pass. But I did a little bit more research into Old Up, I Can't Get a Ticket for the World Cup. It was written by a guy called Ray Fennick, who appears to have been a kind of jobbing session yeah, guitarist, yeah. who clearly sensed the opportunity to have his name on a hit here. It was produced by a saxophone player called Wes. Wesley McGugan. Yeah. Wesley McGugan had a single out on BBC Records. Now, funnily enough, yeah. I've read a really good book about <laughs> BBC <laughs> Records. It was the Edel's Point team, wasn't it? Yes. It is. <laughs> You've nailed it. Which, as far as I recall, was uh, a series about Welsh lifeboat crews. It was, yes. So, yeah. is it possible that the Welsh FA <laughs> held a grudge? <laughs> The other brilliant thing about the theme to Hedel's Point was that it appears to have been produced by Tony Visconti. Yes, because it was based on the Hazel O'Connor song, wasn't it? Oh, is it? It's Will yeah. You, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. yes. Magnificently, the theme to Hedel's Point by Wes McGugan, <laughs> ostensibly produced by Tony Visconti. We've, we've got, have we got three steps here from David Bowie to Peter Dean's <laughs> Can't Get a Ticket for the World Cup? But the name of the credits he's missed out, which is one left out, was me. Gone. It was somebody called, it was engineered by Ted Wellard Hayton. Wellard's about the same way as the dog in his no. 
And the other thing about him is he also engineered Neil's Heavy Concept album, which oh, is right. Neil for the Young Ones album, yeah. which is actually funny. It's a genuinely brilliant album. Yes. It is yeah. a, so it's... how did he get from that to this? <laughs> Was there somebody on the writing team of EastEnders that saw Peter Dean's Can't Get a Ticket a for the World the Cup? name away yeah. from it. Yeah, yeah. it's possible. Oh, that's <laughs> a, what a name for a dog. What a name for a cockney dog. Did you notice what the B-side was called? Oh, I did see this and I haven't written it down. What is it? Right, fine, don't panic, exclamation mark. I'd love to know what that was about. Were they Pete Beale catchphrases? Right, fine, don't panic. They probably were, now you come to mention it. I'm I'm getting a whiff of what are we going to get for her indoors here (laughs) from all of this. I think there was a distinct kind of feel, a, yeah. a, a distinct attempt to emulate the success of what are we going to get for her in Which, of course, has featured on here previously. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It might not actually be the most ridiculous single of that EastEnders chart, Gold Rush, oh, because God. there are two worse ones. Well, not worse musically, but just worse in terms of bafflingness. <laughs> yeah, we've raised the bar a bit here, well, Tim. Tom Watt, who played Lofty, yeah. he was quite a decent musician and he fancied himself as, you oh, know, a proper he? folky. And somebody said, Do you want to make a record? Well, the novelty thing is a proper updated version of Subterranean Homesick Blues. Did he? Which is actually quite credible, but who was going to buy that on the back of EastEnders? If there's a Venn diagram between <laughs> EastEnders fans and Bob Dylan obsessives, <laughs> it's a very small section in the middle, isn't it? But the other one was they actually released some of the background music from the Queen Vic. Right. Killing Time by Barry Blood on BBC Records and Tapes as theme from Angie and Oscar Carpenter's Affair. <laughs> It didn't chart. What's so it sound like? Just dull. Oh, right. AOR, right. mid-80s, you know, the stuff you would have heard in the background of Queen Vic before they started having actual pop records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, I could never understand that. It was recorded like two months in advance, yeah. EastEnders at that point. And you'd have stuff on in the background in the Vic that was just in the charts at that point. And it was before the days when they could have dropped it in later. That is true, it would have actually, had, yes. There wouldn't have been a wild track on the recording for that. Yeah. So... How did they know? I mean, obviously they knew Forever Live and Die by OMD was likely to be a yeah. hit, but some other things. I I mean, you know, how I, did they know that was going to be popular? You've sparked off a long buried memory here, which was, I think, a letter to Points of View in probably in around 1986, <laughs> uh, claiming that the music, like the pop hits that were played mm. in the background in the Queen Vic, always reflected the storyline that was going okay. on in the pub at the time. Right. And having seen this on Points of View, I started, kind of stuck in my head and I started to take mm. notes of this and I can't, I can't remember any specific examples but there was something in it if anyone can think of any specific examples please write it knock yourselves out <laughs> okay well I think we've said all that we want to say about can't get a ticket for the world you speak so, for yourself <laughs> it's going all night so from a bar to another kind of actual literal oh. bar sorry Bob knows oh. what's coming good yeah. <laughs> you'll be saying good grief even more after the click oh. of news for this Okay, that was a cast of Glee singing Jump by Van Halen, because 
It happens very rarely, but this is one of those rare occasions when somebody's picked something that's actually confounded even me. I have no recollection of these and no evidence of these at all. So, Bob, tell us about Glee Bars. Glee Bars were an essential part of my school packed lunch, circa 1982-83. I think this was the result of an <laughs> earlier dinner lady strike. <laughs> Who ever thought that dinner ladies were so militant? <laughs> Burning braziers outside the school, probably with spam fritters frying atop of them. We were encouraged basically to bring pat lunches in to school, which is how I started taking in my regulation pat lunch. Which I can I can tell you this point by point. I remember it distinctly. So my pat lunch comprised two slices of white bread, a packet of Monster Munch, a small carton of Umbongo, plastic straw, so the tape to the back. When the strike began, a club biscuit was my sweet treat of choice. By the time the strike ended, this had been usurped by the exotic glories of the Glee Bar. Now the Glee Bar was essentially, a, it was a cake disguised as a chocolate bar. It was essentially cakey. It was, I think, oblong and elongated. For an extra touch of exoticism, it came in a cardboard tray inside okay. its plastic wrapper. And for an extra touch of otherworldliness, it had alcohol in it. The really? key to the Glee Bar was it was a bit rummy. I mean, you know, in my limited experience of drinking alcohol as a, as a nine-year-old in 1982, even I realised there was a hint of booze. They were gorgeous. They were absolutely gorgeous. The food of the gods. Now, uh, this has been rattling around my head for the previous 35 years. The fact that nobody else appeared to remember Glee Bars mm. at all. In preparation for doing Looks Unfamiliar, try to do a little bit of research. All I can find online is people saying, does anybody remember Glee bars mm. and then tumbleweed and possibly a bit of giant hogweed blowing across the forums after that. Have you found any more about them? Not at all. I mean, I was wondering if they might have been the supermarket own brand I effort. I don't think they were because mm. the tiny snippet of information I've discovered, and again this has come from one of those do you remember yeah. internet forums, is that there was alcohol in them and this was the reason why they swiftly appeared right. and then vanished. Okay. There was some kind of moral panic over the fact that children were being sold cakey bars with booze in. And this appears to have been a result of the mother of Forrest Mars, who was the, you know, he was he was Mr. Mars at this point. Yeah. He was the head of the Mars Empire mm. throughout much of the 20th century. Apparently his mother got wind of the fact that boozy cakey bars were being sold to children and demanded that the Mars Empire disassociate themselves from such a venture. Now, the hitch with this theory is that Forrest Mars's mother mm. was called Ethel G. Kissack, and she died in 1980, which is two years before, yeah. as far as I recall, Glee mm. Mars being introduced. I'm assuming they were made by Mars. The slight complication here is that Mars did definitely make a 1960s product called Glee. Ah. But they were boiled sweets. So the Glee Bar controversy, mm. the Glee Bar mix-up, it, it rages on unabated. And I, I'm afraid on this occasion, I can't answer any of your questions either. Well, I would be surprised if it was Mars, because you would think they would have turned up in those Mars selection boxes. True. I wonder if you're right then, they were a supermarket-only product. It that is the like kind the of sort of stupid name they give them. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. what were the knockoff yo-yos called that you used to get in Sainsbury's? Oh, like, wow. Delitos or something. Like that. <laughs> 
Who did the eleven sales day with giraffes? <laughs> the supermarkets that like, my mum would have shopped in would have been uh, there would have been all of that stuff. Yeah, in there. yeah. In the day, in the days before, like the global corporation supermarkets, you had your little local supermarket. So we had Walter Wilson's um, and Hinton's <laughs> on the side. So it's quite mm. possible it was a northeastern only phenomenon. If one of those supermarkets had produced it, I genuinely don't know. What I do know is that I would I would give any well not anything. I, I wouldn't give up my memories of Peter Dean's hold up. I can't get a ticket for the World Cup. I would give a lot to be able to taste a Glee bar again. You'd think though that if there'd been the again, you know, I believe there was a moral panic, but you'd think there'd be some evidence of that out there. Yeah, I can't find yeah. anything at all. No. Again, I think it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's yeah. it's nostalgia will eat itself. The only evidence I can find that these things existed is people on nostalgia websites saying, "Did these things exist?" So what did the wrappers look like? All I can recall is that they were plastic. You know, the classic plastic mm. chocolate bar wrapper, beigey, beigey. So not very gleeful colour then. Not I especially. Sort of no bright, bold stripes. No, different colours. I think we, we, we might be heading into the pastel shades era here. <laughs> uh, they were beigey, and I think the word glee was written in kind of stylized, joined-up writing. Right. But that's all I can recall. Yeah. Of them. So do you think Tom O'Connor might have scoffed one while he was off on the road? Actually, it's a bit early, isn't it? It's, maybe Tom O'Connor was stockpiling them throughout 1983. <laughs> maybe by the time the Tom O'Connor Roadshow was was out on the highways and byways of oh, the are you UK, a glee bar? he was digging into. Yeah, he was selling them on the black market, <laughs> hanging around on street corners. Want any glee? Well, the other one that, uh, that uh, again, I've tried to find any evidence of and struggled is it's a savoury product mm. from around the same sort of era, I think. Maybe a little bit later, maybe 84, 85. Mm. They were either called rounders or bounders. Oh, and this I, is ringing a bell. Is it? Yeah. I think I, I'm, I'm veering towards rounders here because mm. they were round, but with an A. So R-O-U-N-D-A-S. Mm. And they were a hideous concoction of sausage meat in fried breadcrumbs, but with baked beans inside as well. And I assume you baked these things. Mm. I'd saw them advertised on TV and thought, essentially, there are my three favourite foodstuffs. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if there was a chip stuck on top of them <laughs> and a glee bar underneath as a plinth, I would have been in seventh heaven. I would have pestered my poor mother endlessly mm. to have these things. We tried them once. Mm. And my dad just said they were the most revolting thing that he'd ever tasted mm. in his life. Bear in mind, this is a man who was brought up in 1940s and 50s Middlesbrough. He would have tasted, he would have <laughs> tasted austerity. Even he couldn't handle rounders or bounders or whatever they were called. They vanished as well. No sign of them. Well, hardly ever remembers quirks. Oh. It's sort of mid 80s. You know, and everything had to be sophisticated. Rancid's mm. out today was launched, and Zig Zig Sputnik would come out. So you know, it was like it was like the new sophistication. Yeah. And these were sort of sweet. But they were aimed, I feel, at adults where they were like they were like really big smarties, but right. one would be milk chocolate on the inside yeah. with a white chocolate shell, or vice versa. There would be white chocolate with a milk chocolate shell. Yeah. I think there's something equivalent to them around these days. They were advertised with an ad campaign with a bloke walking backwards through people walking forwards. Oh, that rings a bell. And it was like half comedy, half ah, ah, see, see what we're doing. Right. And they lasted about six months, but I remember because I really liked them. And the fact that they were a bit more expensive made them. That mm. bit more alluring as well, you well, know. You kind of, of felt, I'm getting 
quite sophisticated now. These are the ones for me. And they were taken off the market because nobody bought them. And it's very hard to find anything about them now. What kind of size are we talking here? Because when you said, like, larger Smarties, about you, you made a gesture with your yeah. finger that was like the size of a Frisbee. <laughs> Nearly. Right, OK. <laughs> Not quite, no, no. There is that period, isn't there, where mm. there was an attempt to market sweets, at an old, mm. like you say, at an older audience. Yeah. The thing I recall is that, that dark chocolate was marketed as being kind of exotic and yeah. like children eat milk chocolate because yeah. children have milk but as an adult what you want is dark chocolate yeah. and like so much so there was even like black magic chocolates mm. there's a hint of uh, if you if you have dark chocolate yeah. there's a hint of the occult we're moving into the aspirational yeah. 1980s here <laughs> I will forsake rounders and I will eat black magic mm. chocolates well let's go right back to the less aspirational 1980s for your next you're choice you're speaking my language and here's two gentlemen who've got nothing to do with it but we're going to hear them anyway but it's Star Tuesday the good old fashion honest to goodness down to earth great British Tuesday and if those Eurocrats bureaucrats and other pointless tracks try and take our Tuesday away from us they'll have to get past me first and if they think I'm going to start my show oh no dude will do and Gunton Morgan Mungus they got another thing coming I don't think they are going to do that mate <laughs> Okay, that was Mike Smash and Dave Nice talking about some people trying to abolish Tuesdays. But the Abolish Tuesdays campaign, Bob, was started by someone else, wasn't it? It was. They did a sketch about abolishing Tuesdays. That absolutely has to be a tribute. I'm absolutely convinced it was. Yes, it must be. J. Edward Oliver was a truly brilliant, subversive cartoonist. He began his career, I think, uh, doing uh, strips for the Record Mirror in the late 1960s, where he is probably the closest we've had in this country to a Robert Crumb, I think. He did kind of underground music comic strips. Which gained a following. You know, John Lennon and Yoko Ono purportedly were big fans of J. Edward Oliver's work. His most popular character at that time seems to have been a dinosaur called Fresco Larey. He was a slightly bemused dinosaur commenting upon rock music and current cultural trends. He was also curiously obsessed with the actress Madeline Smith. Yes, he was. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And would put her repeatedly (laughs) into his strip. I think his drawings of her are brilliant. They're absolutely Superb, brilliant. But, uh, a little bit unsavoury from this day and age. Yes, yeah. he, he had a, an interest in Madeline yeah. Smith's anatomy. Have you also seen, just before we leave his music press days behind, yeah. have you seen the amazing takedown he did of Monty Python? Oh, I haven't. Right, it's from, I think it's the run up to series three. Yeah. What I really love about it is he obviously doesn't like them, right. but he's not dismissing them. He's not saying this is rubbish, they're pretentious Oxbridge mm. boys, or saying this is just silly. It's like, he's like, this isn't for me and here is why. Yeah. And it's the whole strip of them saying that this week's gag will be that we will say to put it another way at the end of every sketch. Oh. It's just constantly like us saying, oh, thank you for your contribution. Or to put it another way, shove off your old queen. So wow. It's exactly like, but he nails what Python's style was in a kind of disdainful fashion, but without being and yeah, rude about I, it. One of the Brilliant. things I was going to say was that I think his stuff is Pythonesque. Yeah, so maybe, maybe he thought, thought they were just yeah. revists. They were newcomers. Yeah, they were when treading on his lawn. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I think he was of a similar generation yeah. to the Pythons. Yeah. It, it was a brilliant story. Before we move on from Madeline Smith, 
<laughs> Poor Maddie. The story is that she took exception to his mm. depictions of her and asked him to stop doing it. At which point he drew a cartoon of Madeline Smith asking him to stop doing it. Now, a couple of years ago, I spent a bit of time with Madeline Smith <laughs> and asked her about because she's quite open about mm. you know her life and she talks really kind of frankly about the way that she was depicted in the 60s and 70s and she's utterly without regret. You know, she, mm. she's you know she was fine with it all. So I thought, well, that's curious if yeah, that seemed at yeah. odds with her complaining to J. Edward Oliver about yeah, him depicting yeah. her in this way. So I asked her outright about J. Edward Oliver's cartoons mm. of her, and she had absolutely no idea whatsoever what I was talking about. Ah, so it was a publicist or something. I, you suspect, she said it may have been my agent. Yeah. But I, yeah and I thought, ah, <laughs> quite possibly yes. But anyway, to cut to the chase, J. Edward Oliver, by I think the late 1970s, was no longer working for the music press. I guess the music press had moved on. His stuff was very rooted in prog rock and yeah. classic rock. And, you know, punk had hit by that period. So by the late 1970s, he'd actually started working for children's comics. He was working for IPC. The stuff that I remember him doing in particular was for... He did stuff for Cheeky. He also did stuff for Buster. It, he had his finger on the button, so one of his strips was a, a comic strip called Vid Kid. Oh, yes, yeah. Who could... He had a video recorder remote control yes. that he could control yeah. Real life with so you know if he scored or if he you know, if he missed a brilliant chance in a football match mm. he could wind the football match yeah. back in real life <laughs> and score this time around so you know finger on the mm. button there literally and he also did a great strip called cliffhanger that was essentially the choose your own adventure books mm. where at the end of the strip you could decide what the main character cliffhanger should do to resolve the story mm. and then you turn to a, 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 an extra box at the end of the comic to find out whether you'd made the right decision. J. Edward Oliver had three running gags in his kids' comic strips which I was utterly entranced with and fascinated by. One of them, as you say, was a sign that said Abolish Tuesdays. Just a placard that was in the background of pretty much every comic strip he ever drew for Cheeky and Buster just lying around somewhere. The other one was a little box with a handle yeah, on it. Yeah. Again, a complete non secretaire. And it would just be there in the background yeah, of every yeah. strip. It meant nothing. The other one was a small worm yeah. watching the action. Yes, or commenting sometimes. Sometimes it did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And these are in pretty much every strip that he did. And as yeah. a kid, I was just, I just loved the fact that this stuff meant absolutely nothing. Yeah. I think he was picked up on it once. Why abolish Tuesdays? He was asked by yeah. a reader, why abolish Tuesdays? Yeah. And he just gave the answer that Tuesdays were a nothing day. Mondays, mm. you're still running on adrenaline from the weekend. Right. Wednesdays is your, yeah. the hump day, as they now call it. Yeah. Thursdays and Fridays, you're looking forward to the weekend. Tuesdays, a nothing day. Get rid yeah. of it. Yeah. Doesn't do anybody any favours. So Did he never reveal what the box was? I think he was on. asked and just and yeah. a bit like Dave Allen's missing finger, he would give yeah. a different answer ah, every time. Right. It was just a small box with a handle on. That was it. Now, you'd be aware of the, the work of Neil Perryman and his wife Sue. Yes. The Wife in Space books, yeah. where they watched all the Doctor Who from the start. Yeah. Sue, as well as being a very funny commentator on Doctor Who, yeah. uh, is a, a very accomplished carpenter. And for the last <laughs> couple of years, I've been trying to persuade Sue to make me a small box no. with a handle oh, on it. Oh, I think it's like the sign then. I can do that myself. That's fine. Do that. I want a small box with a handle on <laughs> And once I've got one, I'm going to take it everywhere with me. The purpose of this is that I've got this band. I'm in this terrible band called Old Muggins. And I've written a song that's a tribute to J. Edward Oliver and his three non-secretaries that the other members of Old Muggins have not yet heard. <laughs> 
I mean, to be honest, they've heard worse from me. But once we perform this song live, I fully intend to do it with a box, with a small handle oh, yes. as a prop. Do you want me to sing it? It's very, I, very, on, very short. <laughs> Abolish Tuesdays. I don't like them at all. We need little boxes with handles on to keep us safe from it all. Thank you. That's uh, that will be added to my MP3 player now. We've got it recorded. <laughs> but I do remember a fourth running joke. She's oh, go on. Disappeared from history. Go on. Because I didn't understand what it was at first. I remember in his strips, at one point, now this really dates when it was. Yeah. He had somebody in a cork rimmed hat leaning into the background with her sign pointing at them saying, still looking for pieces of skylark. Now wow. that must have been a thing. Kids must have been looking for bits of burnt up satellite on the ground. Because Skylab landed on a farm in Australia, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. So the corks on the hat. Yeah, so that, that's one that I, I did oh, have a look I online. Nobody mentions that, that anywhere. No, but I remember being obsessed because I didn't know what Skylab was. Right. When did and Skylab I, come down? It's sometime in the late 70s. 70s yeah, isn't it? yeah. It did used to get that kind of invention in children's comics yeah. where it was people were not writing down to the children. They were trusting Completely. them to get. Jokes that you know you would normally say, oh, that's too sophisticated. But, yeah. I mean, because remember when the brilliant Ross Ballinger was on, who incidentally I went to see her stand up set last night. She was fantastic. So everyone go and see her when she's on at Edinburgh. But one of her choices was the Fat Freddy's Cat book. Yeah. You know, the, as we were saying before, Robert Crumb, mm. which as a child she found hilarious. You know, that's supposed to be adults only. Completely. But yeah. it's the, it isn't the naughtiness of it, it's the humour. The surreality. It, it's like somebody who's rejected adulthood themselves. Mm quite a lot and J. Edward Oliver's the same he's not playing by the rules you know the, the DC Thompson and Co kind of uh, yeah. here's some improving yes. you know, it is Black Bob for you or you can absolutely face Finlayson yeah, no, yeah. You, can, you can see the subversiveness of his yeah. like, underground days in the stuff that he did for IPC yeah. for kids and yeah I mean obviously he did temper it because he wasn't mm. he wasn't putting Madeline Smith in <laughs> yeah. every comic strip that he did you know they were they were mm. in keeping with yeah. the style of those comics mm. but he did completely surrender all of his quirk mm. and you're absolutely right that was uh, you know because mm. as a kid God, I, I, there's potential for me to, to, to attempt some profundity here but as a kid I think you're quite an outsider yourself yeah. you, know, you don't yeah. yet know of your place in the world Yeah. so if you can latch on to somebody in the adult world that is yeah. clearly working outside of the mainstream yeah. then you do yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and I think that's, that's often a big mistake in producing stuff for children is yeah. to think well we need to keep stuff like kiddie friendly because they won't understand anything that's yep. at all subversive or nuanced when mm. actual fact kids absolutely do understand even if they don't understand all of the the depth of the nuances you know yeah. they still yeah. realise that it is nuanced and there is something deeper going on there yeah. okay well for your last choice let's move on from the brilliantly illustrated late 60s underground press to something that in many ways was the ultimate horrendous bastardised mutation of it oh <laughs> it's, it's a nice tune for you basics of the trade but hadn't got the nouse to lay the bricks dig the drains or put in lights and doors to slate the roof plumb the bath or lay down any floors but Molly was a grafter and he didn't like the shirt that's why he called in all his mates to help him do the work everyone's a Wally a Charlie or a bungler or a bug everyone's a Wally 
okay, that was Mike Berry, TV's Mr. Spooner from Are You Being Served, singing Everyone's a Wally in, I think, 1984, from the computer game Everyone's a Wally, which I'm amazed nobody's chosen yet. But it's something else about a Wally that we're, the whole Wally phenomenon we're tapping into here, isn't it? Yeah, this is a book called How to Be a Wally, written by Paul Manning, which I guess is the, the ultimate manifestation of the whole Wally phenomenon. Yeah. I've tried to find out the origins of this. Of the I, know, I know the origins of Wally. Is it a rock festival? It is. Yeah. It was, I think it was one of the Isle of Wights. Oh, is it? And supposedly it was the Who's Rowdy Wally. Ah. Wasn't where he should have been. Right. At a key point of the set. And accounts differ as to whether it was Keith Moon like yeah. jokingly shouting Wally whether it was Pete Townsend grumpily shouting Wally <laughs> or whether it was another roadie yeah. but they were shouting Wally and like the crowd started going Wally it caught up. and then apparently it kept happening at festivals after that yeah. people would just shout Wally and then there was a there's a thing on it in Q in the Q&A section where somebody said how did it start and they yeah. explained that but they captioned it with a photo of Rod Stewart performing at Wheelie in the early 70s <laughs> and it just said Wally underneath it <laughs> No, I think that's right. I think it is something that, that caught on throughout 1970s rock festivals. Mm. The one that I can see that it definitely is documented that it happened was Nebworth in 1979, yeah. where it's documented that everybody around the festival site was shouting Wally all the time. <laughs> which, if it began at the Isle of Wight, that would suggest that it would have been going on for quite a few yeah, years yeah. by that stage. So I guess as a result of that, the word Wally came to mm. be identified with somebody who was, you know, a bit clumsy, a bit inept. Yeah because he wasn't where he was meant to be a twit as Iggy Pop once translated it indeed (laughs) yeah so by the early 1980s Wally appeared to I guess cross over into mainstream culture and mainstream (laughs) vocabulary (laughs) and it was a phrase that became used you know it was in common parlance it was used in our school playground it was used in workplaces and as a result of this this book by Paul Manning called How to Be a Wally uh, appeared in 1983 it's the kind of book that maybe you wouldn't buy for your own entertainment but they get bought as presents for people at Christmas for birthdays quite presumably in this case for somebody who you thought might have been a bit of a wally to begin with quite possible (laughs) yeah but as an example of this I think it's really funny (laughs) I mean it does it kind of defines the wally it it takes that initial definition of the wally as being somebody who's a bit silly and a bit inept and runs with it and defines a whole wally life style which is essentially it's a prototype version of Colin Hunt from the Fast Show who is the kind of naff office joker who thinks he's hilarious you know in the early 1980s he's driving a Ford Cortina with fluffy dice hanging from the (laughs) rear view mirror he's playing crazy golf because crazy golf is hilarious if he's in the background of a local news report He's pulling faces and mouthing hello mum at the camera. If he drinks a can of lager, he'll fizz it up beforehand and make sure it sprays everywhere. The sort of person who, whenever you ask them to sign the dates, will say, oh, sign my life away. Exactly, That's always yes. been the thing I've associated with that kind of character. Like filling in a form that says sex. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, please. please. <laughs> exactly this kind of thing. There's actually there's a section in the book about Wally clothing. And the one that... That Paul Manning picks out is slogans on underpants, sex appeal, please give generously. Oh. 
Who's going to actually see that ever? <laughs> if you can't the best you worst them, nobody is going to go near you in your underwear. still put them on thinking somebody's going to have a giggle at these tonight as you splash Brute 33 all over your chops. It gives examples of celebrity wallies. You know, this is... Oh, come on, come on. Right, 1983 vintage celebrity wallies. Well, essentially, any Radio 1 presenter. So Peter Powell is certainly named in there. Uh, Tony Blackburn is named in there. It cites Cyril Fletcher as a veteran Wally. Pam Ayres, who I actually yeah. like a lot, yeah. Pam Ayres, yeah. but Pam Ayres is is cited as a wallet in the vernacular of the book. And there's a whole like language of Wally as well. In the era when if you were if you were in agreement with somebody, then you wouldn't say yes, I agree. You would say. This is it. This is it. This is it. This is it. And there's a section where he talks about Wally Holidays. Who sounds like a composer of TV themes. <laughs> Wally Holidays. And it actually has uh, some useful foreign phrases. And it's from uh, Paul Manning's How to Be a Wally that I have learned the only sentence in Spanish that I can speak to this day. Which is Salafrera a Melo, which is Spanish for step outside and say that. Okay. <laughs> Obviously, for the Wally, he gets himself into a pub brawl in Torremolinos. Well, I mean, there were loads of books like this at the time, because you know, as you say, the whole Wally thing was a big thing, because the two things that I made him remember were yeah. which TV reviewer was it that had Wally of the Week? Oh, good grief. Because I've forgotten about that. I remember one week it was one of the guys from Airwolf, not Airwolf, Blue Thunder, sorry. Right. How did I? I get those two shows mixed up I've got no idea but I remember feeling quite aggrieved that you know the, the main character from my, my favourite TV yeah. show was Wally of the Week and the other was there was a short lived TVAM Saturday morning kids programme which I think we mentioned here before called Splat S-P-L-A-T yeah. like soap puzzles laughter and talent but it was presented by a kind of proto Max Headroom figure called A. Wally oh, it was like right. a nerd who lived in your TV right see I didn't have this but I had a similar book called the completely naff guy right i can't remember who wrote it what i mean it's probably paul manning it might, you know it might have been but it had lists of like everything that was naff in every sort of genre you know like naff records naff holiday destinations and so on but it started off like the first thing was naff tv celebrities and the bottom of the list was parky and oh. parky would be hidden in every list throughout the book <laughs> no matter if it was anything he could possibly have been or not that does sound like a paul manning production yeah. it's either paul manning himself because yeah. uh, there was a sequel to How to Be a Wally called Super, Super Wally. Wally. Yeah. Uh, so it's either Paul Manning himself or, as you know, as, as happened in the publishing industry since time immemorial, another publisher has seen the success of How yeah. to Be a Wally and thought, well, we need to commission our own Wally book here. Um, and it's Does anyone know any Wallys? Could, I, exactly. Sufficiently well-versed in the subculture. To... I'm, I'm going to chuck in another great reference to Wallys, uh, a great TV Wally reference which is an episode of Sorry, the uh, Ronnie Corbett sitcom. It's series... It could only be Sorry. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, series three of Sorry. Mm. It's, it's actually my favourite episode of Sorry. Yes, I have one. And it's it's an episode called... I think it's called Room at the Bottom, and it mm. centres around an Amdram production of A Midsummer Night's oh, Dream. yes, yeah. I remember this one. Yeah. So Ronnie Corbett as Timothy Lumsden is meant to be the prompter in this production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, mm. but ends up playing Bottom, complete with Don <laughs> Head, and he's trying to impress another member of the cast who I think is called Freddy, but she is definitely played by Sheila Fern. Sheila Fern's character, Freddy, has a teenage son 
who takes against Timothy Lumsden, as you can imagine, and and abs- you know, repeatedly calls him a Wally. He's a complete <laughs> Wally. Oh, Mum, stop talking to him. He's a Wally. Um, do we, and Timothy has no idea what this means. It just means nothing to him at all. But he takes great offence. He's quite hurt by it. But by the end of the episode, he's won over uh, the teenage son. And the concluding scene of the episode is the teenage son presenting Timothy with a homemade T-shirt, a printed T-shirt that says, Timothy Lumsden is not a Wally. Okay. Because you had to put okay <laughs> yeah, on the yeah, end it, of every it, slogan. It wasn't a valid sentence Absolutely. unless it had okay <laughs> at the end. Yeah. And it's actually quite a touching scene where you know Barbara Lott, as his terrifying mother, looks at the T-shirt and says, oh, well, that's a silly piece of nothing, isn't it? And Timothy says, well, actually, I think it's really rather something. And it's a really nice, poignant little moment. So, uh, yes, yeah, so the, the Wally, I think. I don't know when the death of the Wally occurred. I'm guessing at a mid... I think that was probably, that was probably peak Wally, the publication of How to be a Wally. I think it had gone by the mid 1980s. Just as there are still people out there who put not on the end of sentences, I dare say there are still some people out there who refer to people as Wallies. Well, just as a closing note, this has led me to one question I have to ask. Yeah. Knowing as you do about the whole anthropology of Wallies and yeah. their behavioural patterns and so on, do you think? The Wallies might have all taken the tickets for the World Cup. Oh, I think it's almost certain, isn't it? That's exactly why Peter Dean couldn't get a ticket and for the World Cup. He would have turned on the TV, seen them all in the stands with their multicolour glasses, That's like it. waving their big novelty parrots or something. They've been, saying, they've been on a, I've got a ticket for the World Cup. They've been, they've been on a coach trip, they've been past the giant hogweed, they've turned up at the Tom O'Connor Roadshow and stuffed their glee bars in their mouths during the interval. They've read Cheeky Weekly. <laughs> the comic strips of J. Edward Oliver and they finally turned up at the World Cup in 1986. Have I covered all bases here? I think you have, Bob. It's been brilliant. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much. Top of the Box, the complete guide to every single release by BBC Records and Tapes, from the theme to the Six Wives, Henry the Eighth, to Awesome Doom by Ed the Duck. More details at timworthington.org.